Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. On today's episode, we are joined by Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. And there is a lot we want to talk to her about. We have a new Supreme Court justice, and we are one week from the election. But first, ladies, how do we feel about what we saw last night at Justice Barrett swearing in? It was really strange to see this happen kind of under the cover of darkness. It was such a stark contrast from the Rose Garden ceremony where she was nominated. And I was really just kind of taken aback by it all. Yeah, no, I think when we look at this in over the context of history, right, you had a just the same Senate Majority Leader, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, refused to hear a nomination of a Democratic president eight months before the election. Eight days before the election, that same Senate Majority Leader shoved through the nominee so that they could take her to the White House and essentially parade everyone out for this big victory ceremony. And it's like, I think America is very tired of making justice political, right? Like we've seen so many people in the streets right now. And so to see that, it was so political, right? Only Republicans were there. He's literally using the White House for yet another campaign-esque event to well, spike yeah, the football. that's the thing. It felt like a campaign event yes, at the White House right. on the lawn again. And I thought that was interesting because for Justice Barrett, who made a point in her remarks to talk about how she's going to be guided by a fair interpretation of the law and a fair and partial rule of law for her to have participated in an event that was so blatantly shown to be a campaign partisan like event is already showing that, you know, her words and her actions aren't matching up. Well, the process was so incredibly polarizing. She's the first justice in 150 years to only receive votes from one party. For them to have an event, and you're right, spiking the football, to your point, Alejandra, at the White House after what happened in the number of people who got sick at her nomination ceremony to turn around and do that exact same thing. It just, it laughs in the face of science and just speaks to how much this administration is out of touch with people who are really sick and who have real needs in this country with regard to coronavirus. And you look at it and we talk about what this legacy means for our country and what it means for Donald Trump. And he doesn't have a lot of really positive accomplishments to go off of, but for him, this is one. You know, he is the only president since, I think, Nixon to nominate three Supreme Court justices. He has fundamentally changed the leaning of the court, and now the repercussions of this is going to live on for generations. Generations. So can we talk about defining court packing? Because I think Kamala Harris actually hit on something in her debate that we have to talk about. The Republicans held a seat on the Supreme Court until they took political power. And then they shoved through a nominee. And now, right before the election, they're shoving through another nominee. So they've now stacked it so that they are packing the court with three nominees in four years of one Republican president's term. That, to me, is court packing. If you want to talk about expanding 
the Supreme Court. That is not court packing. That is expanding the Supreme Court. But the Republicans have made this so political that truly, I don't think that he was doing anyone a favor. I don't think he did Amy Coney Barrett a favor by making this so political because now Americans have a distrust in the justice system at a time where there was already a distrust in the justice system going into whoever is going to be president in the next term. And another area of our federal government that is not supposed to be politicized, but it looks like the Trump administration is going after is they just signed executive order stripping civil servants of protection. So for those of us who may not be as familiar, you know, there are political appointees that come in with each president, work in the administration. The three of us were all political appointees. We obviously worked on the campaigns and were um, very pro-Obama, to say it lightly. But for the career civil servants, they're there regardless of who's a president, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, and their job is not to be partisan, is not to follow any sort of political agenda. But what this executive order is doing is it's creating what they're calling a Schedule F in the accepted service, which by design allows President Trump to purge thousands of federal workers that they deem as being, quote, poor performers. But again, this doesn't say why they're necessarily poor performers. It doesn't give like, it gives very esoteric language. And it's very dangerous. Well, the problem with this is, and a lot of people don't realize this, these federal workers, they have protections in their jobs that keep them from being fired so that they are able to stand up for things like political intimidation by a president. They're able to do their jobs and provide facts and provide guidance based on their subject matter expertise on specific areas and to put them into a category where they are now fireable if they don't toe the line with whatever the incumbent administration believes or whatever the president like President Trump thinks. I can't imagine the ramifications of a decision like this. Well, and that's the thing. Their job, like we all worked with extraordinary civil servants, and their job is to serve the American people with their expertise. So they may be experts in health and human services, like the Dr. Fauci's of the world, or they may have an expertise in for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, keeping our food safe, or NASA, or National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, which literally has data that shows that our coastal cities are going to lose the coastline. And so traditionally, you don't want that politicized. You want people serving the public, making sure that we have the best data. And so this move from President Trump entirely politicizes data in an era where we already know that that's a dangerous step to take. And it's like the power that we're not seeing, this abuse of power is the most dangerous to our kids' future. And so why would they do this, right? So this is the part that everyone's unpacking right now, because why would they do it right now? Um, And why would they do it literally on the eve of this election time? And what appears to be the play is to start purging the federal government of folks who have not been seen as loyalists and so on, moving them into this other class, which allows them to be able to be fired and to instead put actual loyalist to the Trump administration into these positions, which will then be under protection and be um, in an unfireable kind of category. So this is something that whether or not 
President Trump wins re-election will have ripples into the Biden administration, at the very least will create chaos, and at the worst could actually create folks that are working against the interests of the very positions that they're in. Right. If Vice President Biden wins, it's going to cripple his ability to be effective, and especially around coronavirus and relief efforts for a very long time. And we're looking at scientists and doctors and lawyers and people who their work, their entire business is around facts and providing information to policymakers that's devoid of politics. And I think a lot about this when I think about Dr. Fauci and I think about the National Weather Service, the scientist who pushed back on President Trump when President Trump said that Mm -hmm. there was a hurricane headed to Alabama and it was not. This could now be a fireable offense. Can you imagine? Don't you want a government that's led by facts and science? Yeah. But this is a perfect example of the kinds of actions they're taking late at night by executive order that aren't the sexiest things that aren't necessarily rising to the top of our news cycles. But executive orders like this one are actually undermining how our government works. And I think this is why President Obama is so worked up, right, guys? Because like... I don't know if you guys saw it today, but I am loving seeing him back on the trail. That's right. There, I think MSNBC called him Bad Cop Barack, and he was on it today in Orlando. Well, and I think, you know, if you look at it, President Obama really... On the first campaign trail, he was trying to bring Republicans and Democrats together for a better government. And now that we're seeing this abuse of power at every level, it's like he can't stay quiet anymore. Well, you know, President Obama has a point when he's out in Orlando. Any president that can't stand up to Leslie Stahl, who can't sit for a 60-minute interview and storms out because he thinks he's getting too tough of questions, will never be able to stand up to our world's leaders, especially not President Putin. He can't take the heat. He needs to get out of the kitchen. And I'd really love to hear from President George W. Bush, who seemingly is equally frustrated by this, but at least President Obama is bringing the fire because we need to bring the fire on these final days. Our next guest is someone who has not been shy about her feelings about this president, this administration, and the policies that are really working against our American families. It's Shannon Watts from Moms Demand Action. And let's just go to that interview now because we want to keep talking about a lot of these issues. So let's go to Shannon. Shannon Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action, a grassroots movement of Americans demanding reasonable solutions to address our national culture of gun violence. Moms Demand Action has established a chapter in every state of the country and is part of Every Town for Gun Safety, the largest gun violence prevention organization in the country with nearly six million supporters. Welcome, Shannon. We are so excited to have you with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So before founding this incredible movement, you were a stay-at-home mom of five and a former communications executive. Can you share with us what was the catalyst that led you to start Moms Demand Action? You know, like so many Americans, I had just watched horrific shooting tragedy after horrific shooting tragedy and always, you know, said, I hope someone's doing something or or I assumed someone was doing something. Um, And then the horrific Tucson shooting happened with Gabby Giffords. And I thought, okay, her colleagues will surely do something. 
um, as we know, they, they did nothing. And so when I was in my living room in uh, Indianapolis, right outside of Indianapolis, when the Sandy Hook tragedy happened, uh, you know, I was folding laundry, I was watching the television, and suddenly there was breaking news that there was an active shooter at a school in a place called Newtown, Connecticut. And, you know, my world, like so many other people's, stopped. Um, and, and I could do nothing but watch the coverage in horror and outrage. And then I saw pundits and politicians coming on my television saying, you know, somehow the solution was more guns. Mm -hmm. And I knew nothing about mm -hmm. organizing. I knew nothing about gun laws. Uh, I just knew that that was a lie. I knew our country was broken. And I, I knew because I'd, I'd watched for so many years that, that really no one would do anything. And so mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to get involved. I, I'm sure there's an organization out there like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for the issue of gun safety, I'll just join that. And I looked online for a couple hours the day yeah. after the, the Sandy Hook tragedy and found absolutely nothing. I, I found some think tanks run by men, some, some one-off city and state organizations, again, mostly run by men. And I knew I wanted to be part of an army of badass women because that is so often who gets things done in this country. And that's right. honestly, I, I started a Facebook page thinking it would be a conversation, not that I was starting an organization. Uh, and I had 75 Facebook friends. So it just goes to show you, I was not like a social media phenom. And, and it was like lightning in a bottle. The, the, the few friends I had on Facebook started connecting me to other friends and other friends. And it was amazing. I mean, within a week, we were organizing in states all across the country. Wow. I mean, Shannon, I, can I just say, as a mom, how much that inspires so many of us? I know I had had my son, and um, uh, President Obama had to go to Sandy Hook in 2012. It was the year I had had my son, and I remember my colleague who went with him, just everyone felt so defeated because every time that President Obama wanted to talk about common sense reform, the NRA has just had so many claws around our legislators that he couldn't get anything done. And so I remember a principal of my son saying he was so frustrated at one point. And I said, you know, he said he felt helpless. And I'm like, how does President Obama feel? Right. And it's only with activists like you. It's an incredible story. So how how strong you guys are six million supporters now. I. <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, <laughs> before we get into what's ahead of us, last night I thought this was interesting because we saw another mom, Amy Coney Barrett, sworn into the Supreme Court just eight days before the election. And this was after the Republicans yep. said eight months before an election was too much of a political environment to hear a Supreme Court nomination. Um, so I know that we all have issues with this blatant power crab, but Coney Barrett has a large family like you do. Do you think that that perspective of raising her family will change any of the court dynamics? I mean, it, I would like to say that it would, but her positions on so many issues, including the issue of gun safety, have been so extreme and so radicalized um, that, that perhaps her view of motherhood is as well. Um, I, I 
am terrified uh, at the way the Supreme Court looks right now. And it makes it even more important that everyone is, is working toward a good election outcome. But but even after that, you know, I'm already worried about the midterm election. So yeah. um, this is how we get and keep our power. And that is to keep electing uh, lawmakers who will do the right thing. And that includes the makeup of the Supreme Court going forward. Absolutely. Last night, you responded to a tweet from the House Judiciary's official mm. Twitter account regarding Justice Barrett's confirmation and snarkily wishing Hillary Clinton a happy birthday. And you noted that her confirmation, and I'm assuming the process to get there, should be motivation for women to fight for every vote, every seat, every woman. What does this fight mean for women across the country? Well, you know, the the saying, the adage, which is, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And we see that over and over again, not just in Washington, D.C., but in state houses all across the country. Women only make up about 20 percent of all lawmakers in this country. There are about 500,000 elected positions. We only make up about 5 percent of Fortune 1000 CEOs. We are not making the the laws and the policies that protect our families and our communities. And, And frankly, that's why I think Moms Demand Action has been so successful, because we've figured out the levers of power to pull that we do have, right? Like our voices, our votes, or the majority of the voting public, our spending power. We make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. But we need more seats at the table. And and I talk about this all the time. You know, women have to move from not just shaping policy as activists, but to making it. And I don't care if you run for coroner or sheriff or city council or school Mm -hmm. board, all of those positions matter. And if you look at, for example, the Violence Against Women Act, which hasn't been reauthorized for the first time in years, it's because there's a provision in it that the NRA is grading, meaning that they're going to be punitive with lawmakers who support the most recent version of VAWA that passed the House. And and it prevents stalkers and dating partners from having guns. Now, I would guess that if the Senate and and the House were 50% women, that would have been reauthorized, even even Republican women, I'm guessing, um, some of them at least. And yet, you know, every day women are shot and killed in this country, 52 a month wow. because we have such lax gun laws. That is horrific. Let's talk about something that I can't believe I'm about to say out loud, which is the potential for armed voters at the polls on Election Day. In Michigan, state officials announced a ban on openly carrying weapons at polling sites, but gun rights groups have challenged this in court and said it's forcing people to choose between their right to vote and their right to bear arms. People are understand, <laughs> understandably worried about violence breaking out at the polls. I hear your reaction already. What are you hearing in the gun violence prevention community about the likelihood of this happening? Well, look, first of all, I think it's important that you know, we remember that this is sort of the logical outcome of our country's incredibly lax gun laws. Um, The fact that you can open carry with very little regulation in America in over 40 states, um, loaded semi-automatic rifles. What we're seeing at rallies and at protests and even inside state houses, right, these armed insurrectionists, Um, would-be domestic terrorists who Mm -hmm. are using the Second Amendment to quell 
the rights that we have under the First Amendment. That was never the intention of the Second Amendment. And so, yes, I mean, it is certainly concerning, um, and we are working with other, organize, other organizations to make sure that, that this is addressed and that this is um, uh, closely monitored. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to vote <laughs> right. um, and we have to count on, on our elected officials to make sure that that's possible. Well, as we talk about some of these interesting cases, especially at the State House and what we saw um, in Michigan, I think it's such an interesting case because the state finds it acceptable to have these long guns present in the Capitol during protests, but not to have protest signs because they risk damaging the historic property that's contained in the building. And it just, you know, seems so backwards. I mean, along with a lot of our policies, to me, these militia members, and you could say they are state terrorists, the ones that were present during those spring demonstrations were also found to be the same ones responsible for the threats against Governor Whitmer. And you talked a little bit about how, you know, we move policy, but at the grassroots level, which you are so skilled at, what are some of the ways that we can enact policies to deter militias from feeling so emboldened? Well, first of all, you know, the, this, the fact that open carry is, is legally allowed in so many states and, and really mostly unregulated. I mean, it was never intended to be um, manipulated and used the way that it is right now. Um, and, and so it is up to, to governors and state legislatures to make sure that, that um, voters feel like they can go to the polls without being intimidated, right? Right. Armed intimidation is illegal at the end of the day. Um, our volunteers are going to definitely turn out. Um, Americans shouldn't be deterred by this small group of extremists who are essentially looking to undermine our democracy. And, and we have been sounding the alarm on this extremism for years. Um, we've, we have regularly shown up at state houses and been confronted uh, by these armed insurrectionists. And, and again, that's because we've allowed the gun lobby to write our gun laws. But but we have to remember that voting is safe and, and this small group of, of gun extremists cannot dictate the outcome of this election. Um, and, and really, anytime we've seen incidents of intimidation at polling stations in the past, they've been quickly shut down. Um, so we, we just, again, we have to show up and vote for leaders who will put the safety of our families first. You know what I, I keep thinking about while we're talking about what we should bring on Election Day? I'm like, if people would just bring musical instruments instead of guns, like if we could just turn this into a party on Election Day to celebrate democracy, I am praying for a very boring Election Day. But well, they're doing it, pizza yeah. at the polls. Have you heard about <laughs> this? And if there's that. a long line, yeah. you can call. Yeah, no, I love it. I Even if it happens, though, Shannon, even if it, it, Election Day is boring and we have a celebration, Americans remain divided. And so, you know, how is it you've seen really building an organization on the local level? How is it that we can bridge those differences and bring people together? Well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because people assume that this issue of gun safety is somehow polarizing. But when you look at actual polls, what you see is about 93% of Americans overall support stronger gun laws, like a background check on every gun sale, uh, 80% of gun owners, even 74% of NRA members. That's a, a Republican poll done by Frank Luntz. Um, so it's not polarizing among Americans. It's polarizing among some lawmakers who 
have been beholden for decades to the gun lobby. They, they're one of the most wealthy, powerful special interests that's ever existed. And you don't undo that overnight, right? It takes mm. several election cycles to show politicians that if they do the right thing, you'll have their back. If they do the wrong thing, you'll have their job. And, and that takes years. And, and we've been at this for eight years. And I think the progress we've made is in large part because we have turned out what used to be a silent majority on this issue, right? Um, it isn't just that women are voting anymore for education or the economy or healthcare. They're also voting on this issue. We see that based on polling data. Um, and, and so it really is about ignoring the small vocal group of gun extremists, not allowing them to set the agenda or the tone anymore and, and getting people to turn out on this issue. And, and that also shows lawmakers that they can do the right thing. You know, I, I use the example, if you all remember the, the Mansion Toomey bill that was put forward by Congress in the wake of the Sandy Hook school shooting. And, and it was voted on by the Senate in 2013. It was bipartisan. It would have closed the background check loophole, which allows unlicensed gun sales without a background check in America. And it lost by a handful of votes in the Senate. Some of those senators were Democrats who voted against Manchin Toomey. Yeah. And so we had to show the, the Democrats especially that with, with friends like the NRA, no one needs enemies, right? Because for example, Mark Pryor in Arkansas he voted against background checks, a Democrat. He thought the NRA would have his back. Instead, they turned around and gave millions to Tom Cotton, who's now a senator. And, and in fact, if you look back, not a single senator on the Democratic side who voted against Manchin Toomey still has their job. Wow. And it took years to show them that lesson, right? And now you have Democratic senators in every single state who support this issue. In fact, about five or more years ago, a quarter of all Democrats had an A rating from the NRA. Today, in this election, only one candidate running for Congress has an A rating for the NRA on the Democratic side, and he's running in Minnesota. So it does go to show you that there's a true seismic shift on this issue. And, and I hope that we are on the precipice of true national change with this election. Well, as we talk about this election season, and I know that it means so much, especially on this issue, we also see that Americans are on track to break voter turnout records with over 66 million early votes submitted. We're also seeing a record number of women running for office on both sides of the aisle. You also work with Emerge America, an organization that helps recruit and train women running for office. What do you say to women who might be interested in pursuing a political career, and how do we best support and encourage them? Yeah, I, I think there is a moral imperative in this country right now for women to run for office. And I understand that it's intimidating, um, that it can be scary, that uh, you feel like your life might be too busy, but we can't afford to sit on the sidelines. That's right. You know, if you spend any time in your state legislature at all, you realize these people are not rocket scientists. Um, They're mostly men who felt that they were more <laughs> qualified for the job, even though they weren't. And if you are caring and compassionate and, and concerned, you would make a wonderful state representative. So I, I, I do work with, I'm on the board of Emerge America. It's a wonderful organization that, that trains progressive women to run for office. Something I'm incredibly proud of is the amount of women in our organization who have moved 
not just shaping policy, but to making it. This election cycle, we have 100 volunteers running for office. 50 of them are volunteer leaders um, up and down the ballot all across the country. Um, in the last election cycle, Lucy McBath, who was a Moms Demand Action spokeswoman, she's a gun violence survivor. We helped her win a seat in Georgia that had been held by Republicans for 30 years. It's Newt Gingrich's old seat. Um, we have another volunteer who will likely win her race in Illinois, uh, Marie Newman. So it, it is incredibly heartening to look out at the landscape and see so many women running for so many different levels of office. And, and anyone who's listening to us should be thinking about when and how they can run to. I couldn't agree with you more, especially about the moral imperative. As, as someone who ran for Congress myself in 2017, called by this moment in time, I just I especially want to want to thank you for supporting women in this way, because it is a very hard thing to do, um, but couldn't be more important right now. So thank you. And, you know, to close, we're less than a week away from Election Day. And for those of us who want to know that we did everything we could to help elect Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, flip the Senate, hold on to the House, everything down ballot. How can we plug into your grassroots movement? Every single second, every single call, every text, every contact list lit drop, it all matters. I just had a, a conversation on my Instagram live with a volunteer who is now a state representative in North Carolina. In the last election cycle, she won by 415 votes. It matters. Making wow. these calls and sending wow. these texts and having these conversations, it matters. So if you are interested um, in in spending your very precious time doing something that will have huge dividends, you can go to gunsensevoter.org and we will, again, plug you into text banks, phone banks, contactless lit drops, wherever you live. And even if you are interested in a state that you don't live in, um, we have ways for you to plug in, especially in those battleground states where every single conversation matters right now. We cannot take our foot off the gas until election night and maybe even past election night. That's right. Um, and, and I would just urge everyone to know that even if they spend, you know, an hour of their lunch break doing this work to get out the vote, it will matter. That is a perfect note to end on. It matters. Shannon Watts, Moms Demand Action. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Shannon. Take care. I'm so glad Shannon came on. Do you guys remember the day that President Obama came back from Newtown having comforted family members of kindergartners who had lost their little children in a school? I remember because I had a brand new baby. All of us, we had seen it time and time again, even on the campaign trail when we had to change an event, an entire event, because there had been a shooting in a movie theater. And here he was having to comfort families, knowing that we had lost control of the Senate and there was no way to get gun legislation through. It felt like the world had stopped is really the only way that I can describe it. And I've seen President Obama in so many situations where he is acting as a father and as, you know, comforter in chief. And it's one thing when you see him at a military funeral, there are no words to describe a memorial service for children is really the only way there is to put it. 
And to hear how she was really galvanized to work on this issue, like realizing that we have this very small vocal group that has really taken over this conversation around guns and turning out this silent majority, as she refers to it, of moms, of women that are just tired of seeing their children be terrorized and brutalized and murdered in their own schools. You know, she's really put her finger on a pulse on an issue that, you know, should not be something that's polarizing. You know, children should not be undergoing gun drills when they're in school. Well, and it's like my dad is a member of the NRA and he's a hunter, but he does not believe that he needs to have military assault rifles. And he, if anything were to happen with his gun and it be used in the wrong way, he would not be able to live with himself. And we require more background, more more steps to get a driver's license than to get a weapon that can shoot and kill children, innocent children. I remember our team members coming back from that event and men, Brandon Lipo, you guys all remember, Brandon is a friend of ours who ended up dying of cancer, but he had been on vacation and he volunteered and went to the site. And I remember him coming back and just being so moved, like, what can we do? And, you know, when you lose control in power, Senate or the House, there's very little you can do. And we had just been in that position where we had lost power. We cannot do that this election. Elections have consequences. And this is the sort of policies that are taking place right now are a result of those consequences, unfortunately. And you're right, we cannot allow for this to happen this election. Well, and I'm glad that on top of galvanizing a grassroots movement that she's paying equal amount of attention to getting women in office, to making sure that people who have real lived experiences end up in these state houses on up on down, because this is how it is that we're going to have folks that are crafting legislation that actually understand the ramifications of their decisions. This election is so important. I hope everyone goes out. I hope no one believes the misinformation. I hope everyone gets involved. It's, you know, we have one week to go. This is the last time we're with you guys before the election. And so, you know, if we're, we're getting a little emotional here, it's because, you know, we recognize how much is on the line. We've been here having this conversation with you guys for the last couple months, all leading to this moment. If you haven't voted, please do call folks, get involved with these grassroots efforts. There's nothing that you want to feel that you didn't do that you should have. It's all on the line here. So give it all you've got. And if you want an example of someone who really appreciates her right to vote, do you want to give us our POTUS of the week, Darian? Sure. Um, Mabel Harrison of Virginia. At 97, she's voted in every election except one since 1944. When Mabel Harrison was 21 years old, she voted for FDR and had to pay a poll tax and pass a test to cast her vote. Now at 97, she has a message. You need to get out and vote. Everyone get to the polls. Everyone listen to Mabel. I am I am doing phone calls with Wisconsin. I saw Pete Souza is going to join me this weekend. You guys, we can do some get out the vote in all of these states. They are on the line. Our shout out this week goes to Jen O'Malley Dillon, who is running the Biden campaign. Win this thing, lady. 
You know, none of us know what's going to happen next week. From questions about voter intimidation at the polls or how people are going to turn up or how ballots will be counted and mail-in ballots, who knows what's going to happen in this next week. But we do know that we will be here with you guys to talk about it and to break it all down. So we will see you next week and happy voting. 